Well, good evening, everybody. It's not Happy New Year yet, I guess, right? That's next week. Uh, welcome to everybody who's here and on Zoom. Let's just uh, open our time in a word of prayer. Our blessed God, Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your presence with us. We're grateful that we can come to the house of the Lord to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to come into the presence of the living God. And so, Father, we we come before your presence this evening, and we are indeed always in, in need of your spirit to help us understand the word of God and take it in. So once again tonight, we ask you to teach us and to help us that we'd each learn something from you and be blessed. So we commit ourselves to you in our Savior's precious name. Amen. So this evening... Uh, I'd like us to look into the Gospel of Matthew. Starting on Sunday, January the 8th, we're going to be taking up our study of the Gospel of Matthew, picking up at chapter 16. So to get us thinking a little bit about Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew again, my goal this evening is to look at some of the specific characteristics of the Gospel. And in particular, uh, I'm looking at four different characteristics the structure, uh, the king and the kingdom, the plot line, and the Old Testament. Now, uh, going to change the order on that. That's okay. So, the structure. Matthew was a tax collector and therefore a bookkeeper by profession with the fondness of an orderly arrangement of his material. And the material in Matthew is based on a rhythmic back-and-forth movement between blocks of narrative and discourse material. There are five discourses, five sermons. And uh, the writer, Matthew, ends each of these five main collections of sayings of Jesus with the same formula. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. So we have... In chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, then we have some miracles, then the commissioning of the disciples, we have some conflict stories, the parables of the kingdom, uh, different events, then the Sermon on the Entry of the Kingdom of Heaven and Forgiveness, more conflict, and then we have the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24. So we have these this back and forth, and it's interesting, a very deliberate structure. Now you might say, well... <clears throat> What does that do for me tonight, and why do I care? Well, it's uh, as Christians, we want to learn the Bible. We want to know the Bible. And anything that can help us remember what's in the book of the Bible uh, is good for us. We know that Jesus defended himself against the devil at his temptation. In Matthew 4, he quoted scripture. And we also know that in, the, in Ephesians 6, the armor of God, it's all linked to the Bible. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God is infinite. He's all-knowing. All and uh, there's things that we will never enter into. We just don't have the capacity. But he says, But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of the law. So we have the Bible. It's been given to us, and we're to learn it, and we're to know it. That's what God's given us, the Bible, right? And uh, it's our duty to 
to know the Bible. And I'm just going to take a little bit of a little bit of a sidebar here in in John 14, 26, which is not the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to say, but sometimes people I hear people saying, well, I'm, I don't like to read. I'm not a, I don't want to be an elder. I'm not a pastor. I really don't want to get too much involved in Bible study. But here's a very interesting thing. And, and to those people, if there's anybody, probably not tonight, because you're all interested in the Bible. Tonight, in John 14, verse 26, we read this. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Now, there's a primary application to the apostles. But there's an application for us here, too. The whole, the, one of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to teach us the Scriptures, to open it up to us. Keep in mind that the apostles, most of them, they weren't academics. They were fishermen, carpenters. Uh, Matthew was an accountant. The apostle Paul was an academic. Well, that's right. But most of them... God gave them the scriptures, opened up the scriptures, and he does the same for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul teaches us the same thing. He says in verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things to spiritual. This is the Word of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, but they are spiritually discerned, and so on. And we read in, in 1 John 2, verse 20, that we've been anointed. We'll go there, but... So here, here's what I want to leave with you tonight. If you want to experience the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, apply yourself to the study of the Bible, depending on God. And God will open up the scriptures to you. It's his ministry. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will help you to not only understand them, but also to remember them, because we need them when, we, when we're going to face temptation. So... Going back to Matthew, Matthew is, has five discourses in it and with events on either side, narratives. Secondly, we have the Old Testament in Matthew. That's another very characteristic. As you know, there's four Gospels, and each of them has its own perspective. But Matthew has almost twice as many references to the Old Testament than the, than the three other Gospels combined. There are 50, approximately 55 references in Matthew compared to about 65 in the other three Gospels. And about 20 of these texts are unique to Matthew. And so in addition to explicit quotations, there are numerous allusions and echoes of Scripture may be discerned in every part of Matthew. And, and so... Uh, Matthew, it's been said, is, the, is a bridge to the New Testament from the Old Testament. Some of you might be saying, well, Brian, <laughs> why is that important to me 2,000 years later? I'm not Jewish. Why do I care? 
Well, think about it. We're asked to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation, right? Amongst other things. And the Lord Jesus Christ made many categorical statements about himself, exclusive statements that would otherwise be preposterous claims. Uh, preposterous meaning completely contrary to nature, reason, or common sense. Utterly foolish, absurd, or senseless. He said he was the light of the world. He said he was the resurrection and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. Now, you don't say that about yourself if you are a regular human being or even a great prophet. So where did he come from? It's important for us to realize that he didn't just show up out of nowhere. Uh, all that he did and said was predicted in the Old Testament. You know, maybe some of you, when you start reading the Gospels, you start reading the genealogies, you're tempted to say, well, why would anybody start a book with a genealogy? <laughs> it seems kind of boring. But think of it. Think of the significance of the genealogy. We're thinking a bit about that on Sunday, I believe. You cannot choose your parents, right? No one could have invented or orchestrated that genealogy, God, except God, right? Like when we, when we come into this world, we can't, we, we can't determine our genealogy. It, it exists. And so it is, his life was the fulfillment, not just of specific prophecies, but also to his character. He's the culmination of the Old Testament. We can't say that about Joseph Smith, about Muhammad, about any other so-called religious leader. Jesus Christ it came from and was predicted in the Old Testament to the letter. Secondly, why is it important for us tonight to think about that as well? And as we go through the, the Gospel of Matthew, well, people often ask, what is our relationship to the Old Testament as Christians, right? And why? And I've even heard people say, well, why do we bother even reading the Old Testament? Why do we have the Old Testament if we're just Christians? Well, <clears throat> the short answer to that is we let the Lord Jesus interpret the Old Testament for us. But there is continuity, just like there is some, some things that are discontinued. But in Matthew 5, verse 17, we read this. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And uh, we read the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, You've heard it said, and Jesus quotes the Ten Commandments, but I say unto you, and he explains and he pushes the Ten Commandments even further. So there, there is change, but it's built on what is there. He taught us to forgive our enemies and to love them. Also keep in mind that Israel was a theocracy. God ran the whole country and the government. Now there's no country in the world today like that. And God's directives for the church are different than they were for Israel as a nation. But Matthew speaks a lot about the Old Testament. He speaks a lot about the law. And we get insights as to how to understand the law as Christians. So, thirdly, Matthew talks a lot about the Messiah, Jesus as the Messiah, the king and the kingdom. 
is perhaps the most dominant characteristic of the book, the word royal. Jesus is the Messiah. And the concepts of the Messiah and the kingdom are at the heart of this gospel more than any, more than any other gospel. So we have, a, we have a royal genealogy. Jesus is the son of David, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 6, 16, and verse 20. And for example, in Mark, the title is only used once by Bartimaeus, the blind man. But in Matthew, it's used several times. Blind men on two different occasions, the woman of Canaan, crowds when he enters Jerusalem, the children in the temple, and after healing the blind and dumb and demoniac. And then, of course, we have the worship of the Magi in chapter 2. They came to worship the king. And then we have the principles of the kingdom on the Sermon of the Mount. And his kingship is different from the world. His kingship stands in striking contrast to the worldly kingships exercised by Herod the Great and Herod Antipas. There's a vast difference in methods. The devil's weapons are that of violence, cruelty, oppression. Jesus has no place for that. And he alone, Matthew alone quotes in Matthew 9.13 and 12.7, I desire mercy and not sacrifice from Hosea. So the character of the king is a remarkable combination of strength and humility. He's born in royal Bethlehem, but he became a despised Galilean provincial. And the characteristics of the citizenship are described in the Beatitudes. Jesus condemns the proud, the uncharitable, and the unforgiving, and the jealous spirit, and so on. So we have the credentials of the king, the authority over disease, authority to forgive, and then we have the rejection of the king and the kingdom and the mysteries of the kingdom and the continued mystery of the rejected king. So we need to keep in mind as well that what kingdom was Matthew talking about? And there again, the historical context is important. Israel had been without their own king, according to the lineage of David, since the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. They had come back under Cyrus. They were able to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, but they had no king. And in the interim, God described for them a coming kingdom through the prophets. And we read that in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. And uh, so what are the characteristics of the coming kingdom? First of all, the belief for the coming kingdom rests on four unconditional, unfulfilled covenants made with Israel. They can only be fulfilled within the framework of a messianic kingdom or a millennial kingdom. There's the Abrahamic covenant, which promised an eternal seed, developing into a nation that will possess promised land with some definite borders. The second covenant is the Palestinian covenant, or the land covenant, that spoke of a worldwide regathering of the Jews and repossession of the land following their dispersion. And the Davidic covenant is the third covenant, and it is promised four eternal things, an eternal house, eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and one eternal person. So the dynasty became eternal because it culminated in the person who is himself eternal, Jesus the Messiah. For that reason, the throne and the kingdom will be eternal as well. But Jesus has never sat on the throne of David, ruling over the kingdom of Israel. And the reestablishment of the Davidic throne and the Messiah's rule over the kingdom still awaits a future fulfillment. It requires a future kingdom. The last of these covenants is the new covenant, which spoke of the national 
regeneration and salvation of Israel, encompassing each individual Jewish member of that nation. So to summarize, the basis for the belief in a messianic kingdom is twofold, the unfulfilled promises of the Jewish covenant, covenants and the unfulfilled prophecies of the Jewish prophets. We haven't seen that on the earth yet. And if we read in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, uh, it summarizes for us some of these characteristics of the kingdom. And I'll just read them for us. This is what they were waiting for when Jesus came. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, Now in the latter, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. And from out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So has this, has this kingdom come? Has it happened yet? No, it hasn't. It hasn't happened yet. This is the kingdom that, that could have come if the, if the nation had accepted Christ, but they didn't. And so when, when they're referring to the kingdom, this is the kingdom they're referring to. It's important for us as Christians to, to recognize this because the word king and kingdom are used quite a bit and even down through church history. We're not here to build an earthly kingdom. Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. And there has been and there continues to be so-called churches that conduct their affairs even with the same pomp and circumstance as the King of England. But the church is different than that. We are uh, a spiritual kingdom perhaps, but we're not an earthly kingdom. One day Christ will return and set up his kingdom this is what they were waiting for. This is what they wanted, but it didn't happen because Israel rejected them. So it's, it's important to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom. Next, so we have the structure of the book. It's, it's interesting. It's very structured. We have uh, the abundance of Old Testament references and the connection to the Old Testament. We have this notion of the king and the kingdom. These are, these are unique and dominant in Matthew. And then also there's a plot line that is very, uh, that is emphasized. Now you might say, well, it's the same story, isn't it? That the Gospels are, are recounting? Yes, it is. It is, but, but Matthew highlights the conflict with the, with the leaders of Israel. In Matthew 2, we already, we have Herod who tries to murder the newborn. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist addresses the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. In Matthew 10, Christ warns about persecution and division. And in Matthew 11, John the Baptist goes to prison. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees criticize the disciples for plucking grain on the Sabbath, and they criticize Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. The Pharisees described Jesus as casting out demons with the help of the devil. 
In Matthew 13, we have the discourse of the parables of the kingdom. The kingdom goes underground. In Matthew 23, Jesus denounces and pronounces woes on the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, these are the leaders. And remember, the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, do you want to tone it down a little bit? <laughs> do you know who you're talking to? And in Matthew 24, Jesus predicts the destruction even of the temple. And of course, in Matthew 26, there's the betrayal and the arrest and the trial. In Matthew 27, the crucifixion. In Matthew 28, the resurrection. But in chapter 12, we have a pivotal point in the whole book. Maybe we have the time. We'll just turn there. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew points this out to us. Matthew 12, 22 to 31. <clears throat> and we read this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed and blind and mute, and he healed him. So the, the blind and mute man spoke, both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Because the Jewish exorcists, they talked to the demon. And, but you can't talk to a demon if, he's, if, the, if the man having the demon is mute. But Jesus did. And he cast him out. That's why they thought, could this be the son of David? Now the Pharisees heard it, and they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. And then he goes on to say in verse 39, he said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and so on. So this is the point where the leaders of, of, of Israel reject Christ. And I suggest to you, as others have suggested, that this is the unpardonable sin. And they, they look for a sign, but they're only going to get the sign of the resurrection. And from that time forth, Jesus would, he, would raise Lazarus from the dead. There would be his own resurrection. And in Revelation 13, there are the two um, witnesses who die and are raised from the dead. But there are, there are no more signs for them except that. And we read in Zechariah. Zechariah 12, just take the time maybe to turn there. We have a couple of minutes in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. This is fast forward after the rapture during the tribulation period 
I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. And then we, we go down to verses uh, 8, chapter 13. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die, but one-third of it shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and then test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer him and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. So at that point, the sin that they did in Matthew 12, they repent of it and they turn to Christ. And that's when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. So Matthew 12, what we read of in Matthew 12 is a very pivotal event in the history of Israel and in the history of the world, is it's not until the, the Jewish leaders repent of that and turn to Christ, that Christ will come and set up his kingdom as he had announced. So, uh, it's very interesting to see all this happening in, in the Gospel of Matthew, all that was predicted in the Old Testament, how it played out, and how the leaders... Uh, dealt with him and rejected him and accused him and how he uh, changed his ministry after Matthew 12. Matthew 13, he explains the mysteries of the kingdom, why the kingdom would be delayed, and then he goes on to be rejected. So <clears throat> Matthew is, is, in fact, a very sturdy, the Gospel of Matthew is a very sturdy bridge <laughs> from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but there are some, some things in there that uh, we do well to understand. So it's our key to understanding the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the relationship between Jesus and the Jews, Jesus and the kingdom, and the very fact that Jesus didn't come from nowhere. He's the culmination of God's revelation to mankind. And just on a personal note, I have to mention that one, I believe it was... Uh, Whoever spoke, I think it might have been Tim Knuth, spoke on the genealogies, uh, Matthew chapter 1, last year. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I was thinking of that. <laughs> and it dawned on me, you can't invent this. You can't invent a genealogy. This is history. And this is where uh, our Lord Jesus Christ was a historical figure who was the result of a very intricate plan that God actioned in a very specific time and place. And it's very mind-blowing, if we could put it that way. May God bless his word to our heart. Our, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. <clears throat> I thank you most of all for your Holy Spirit who helps us to take it in and to understand it and to uh, understand it uh, by your grace. And we see that you have a plan, plan for the ages. You have, and you, you came and you presented yourself to the Jewish nation as the Messiah, as the king. You presented the kingdom, and they rejected you. And Father, we know that that too was in the plan of, in, in God's eternal plan, because it, it is what led you to the cross. So Father, we just thank you. I thank you for the marvels in your revelation. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you help us to take it in and how it uh, shores up our faith, and how it 
strengthens us as we contemplate what you've written down for us. And uh, bless your word to our heart. And we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.